0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about
1: stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pellgrain Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Freebies at the table, The Wagner Group, Krungus, and William Morris's RPGs. Ken, do you know anything about kitties?
1: I might.
0: But do you know about magical kitties?
1: I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem.
0: In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and
1: save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes, like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human
0: problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans.
1: The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A soul- play graphic novel adventure
1: within moments of opening it kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game
0: run magical kitties save the day for kids as young
1: as six years old and for everyone else who loves kitties
0: a great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM
1: if you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games
0: magical kitties save the day is the perfect game to do it do you mean perfect I also do not Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of burritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive... Welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And look at this, Robin, that pack of, of, uh, eight miniatures. It had nine in it. And these Doritos were on, were on special sale as if you bought a, a six pack of Mountain Dew and, uh, the dice were actually pretty expensive, but still, still we got a little extra bonus and that makes us feel good, which raises the question... In a game with resource management elements, like Gumshoe asks you, when do you decide not to charge the regular price for something, but instead let it happen to make the plot good? This is about when do we do zero point spends in the Gumshoe parlance of the day? Am I correct, or am I missing a a bet? Or
0: in the Quick Shock version that Yellow King has the uh, pushes, which are the equivalent of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not about the fact that Most information costs you nothing, Mm -hmm. but, you know, Gumshoe isn't the only game with a resource management thing where it'll cost you something to to do something, Uh, but it's the one we know, and it's the one we're going to use for the example. But there's lots of times when you will hit something where normally, uh, I guess equivalently, uh, you can even say, you know, this goes back to the question of when do you skip roles, right? Because even a role to see if you grab the golden goose or or what have you, in a way as a, not a cost that you have to think about, but it's still, it's a cost in the sense of you're exposing yourself to risk of some sort, Mm -hmm. including the risk of failure. But specifically what brought this to mind is, I I guess I'll start by saying that uh, if you've ever run a tabletop game with its designer, you may (laughs) notice that they wildly fudge their own rules because what most role-playing game designers are first and foremost, is they're great GMs. And great GMs care about the experience that you have about the table uh, more than they do about absolute fidelity to the rules. Because yeah, the they're rules, in the moment, right? Yeah, the rules only exist in service of that. And they're trying to create something that, on average, will lead to the best experience. And so something like the fact that you have to spend pushes in this game that are connected to your abilities exists to make the game fun. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is fun about them is that they make you feel special, mm-hmm. uh, that you're the one who has the option of being the one who makes the inspiration push, as opposed to the other players. You're the one who is inspiring or capable of doing that or, or whatever it is. And so when you do decide to make a push, when you have a special thing that you can spend, or, you know, a power that you can spend, you feel special and you feel uh, that something fun is happening about you. And, it also makes the moment a bigger deal. And so people are often very happy to make pushes, to spend things, to get benefits because that's exciting and fun. Mm-hmm. But the downside of that is if you run out of those pushes at a crucial moment in the storyline, is that then a drag?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so I guess what we want to look at in, in the rest of this example is when are the moments when he was GM – you're going to break the illusion if you go, ah, you know, normally this costs a push, but it's more fun to do it if we don't. That's, you're giving away the game too much. Mm -hmm. You do want to, you know, have a bit of a curtain that uh, the things are behind. But still, you also don't want to rank obedience to the rules above having the best possible moment happen in the game. And so the the question then is, how do you determine as a GM, is this the moment when you're going to, you know, just quietly ignore that rule and not ask for a spend, presumably because, you know, they can't spend it. They're out of something. Mm-hmm. Because if they can't spend it, problem solved. Yeah. You can do it. That's great. That, that solves both things. They feel special and the plot continues to be good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess we have a, a, a lot of questions raised by the cloud of this. Obviously, at the moment in the table, if you, the GM, are feeling it, if you're hot, certainly don't let some half-remembered podcast tell you you were wrong, but this does raise a couple of points. One, there are some games that the economy is much more part of the rhythm, and I'm looking at games like Fate, or even um, games with a, a fairly heavy hero point economy, like Savage Worlds, some versions of, uh, or some tables, at least, of memes and masterminds, probably depend pretty heavily on their hero point economy. So, a lot of those sorts of games, if you fiddle with the economy, it's very much like don't bother rolling, but in D and D and D and D you can get that if it's, Oh, we, we need to get the goose. So a fun climax can happen. But if the climax, if this is Indiana Jones scrabbling for the grail, you, you want to make him roll. You, you can't say, Oh, it'd be more fun if you never got the grail. So too bad. Or it'd be more fun if you got the grail. So go ahead. The, the player is expecting the contract of the game expects that role. So in some ways, games that are even more about resource management than they are about emulation. It's a harder call than it is, I think, at the average gumshoe table. And I, like you, Robin, many's the time and oft. The way that I do it is just lots of things that might cost spends under another GM just don't cost spends under me. I'm a very generous zero point spend guy. I, I very radically interpret the, the gumshoe ethos of you have the ability, therefore it happens. But. Very seldom do I, you know, rule out, say, a general rule, which is sort of the other the equivalent in, in, in other kinds of games of of making these sorts of decisions. And then I guess the question is, everybody is different. Every table is going to be different. There are going to be some tables that feel like the economy of pushes is so scant because you have so few of them in QuickShock that, you know, giving you a free one is a little bit like taking a little of the wind out of the sails of of the use of pushes by the other players. And that's that's something that's going to come down to your table. At a regular gumshoe table where everyone's got, you know, a dozen abilities or however many, um, it's not as big a deal if you give uh, a couple of freebies out. But if you freebie a thing that ordinarily was going to cost one of the six pushes at the table, that's a, a bigger bonus and therefore has a bigger effect on the game. You know, one, one could argue positively or negatively. Do you have right. thoughts for games where the economy is... Is a more uh, rigorous part of gameplay, a la Fate? Well,
0: rigorous or not, one thing to look at first of all is: is there a sense that some players are profligate with their spending, and others <laughs> keep them close to the vest? Because if the player who's like, "Yeah, I'll spend, I'll spend, I'll spend," is the one who, once you get to the pivotal scene, happens to be the one who has the ability that you need to give them for free, you want to make sure that it doesn't feel to the other to the other players that they are getting a freebie at all, right? You have to find some other rationalization, you know, make sure you don't say, so who has inspiration to make a push? Oh, it's Diego. He's the, oh no, I shouldn't have asked at all. And so, because you don't want people going, well, we can just spend like Diego does because you're always going to give us a freebie if it really matters, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. messes up the whole thing. Right. And so part of that is, you know, finding some other way to exert a cost other than, the push that Diego has already spent. So it may be that if an interesting, fun thing at the end is that the investigator talks the two of the reluctant members of the conspiracy into turning against the really bad ones, that's an exciting, fun moment that you can do lots of things with. So normally it would be a push. Diego has spent his push. The other players will suspect you if you just let him be that inspiring in what is clearly not an information gathering thing. And so if the other classic solution is find another cost other than the push, right? So that normally you'd be able to make the push to do this. This time you get shot in the leg and you still get the thing so that there's some yeah. other uh, penalty or that you have to make a composure test. or And, yeah. you know, with any of those other games, it's, okay, I'm giving you a freebie, but the other players are aware of that and they're not into it. So the freebie's going to cost you something. Right. But... If everybody's into it and nobody's paying attention, that's less brain work on your part coming up with a rationalization of why suddenly you get shot in the leg after this inspiring speech.
1: Right. Especially, yeah, since, you know, that was a social push. I didn't know guns were involved. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're so inspiring. Let me hand this gun over to you. Right? Right. Oh, no. Or you're you're so inspiring that uh, an area nihilist is like, how dare you inspire hope? Bam. <laughs>
0: Yes, well, when in doubt, have an have an Aryan nihilist come through the door.
1: I mean, that works in 1895 Paris, but in very few other settings. I guess Portland. But other than that, it's not going to work. Yeah, so uh, so much of this does come down to table feel and knowing the players, that it's very, very hard to say we have a general rule, because if we had a general rule, it would be in the rules, right? Right. We'd have written because that.
0: That's why we're having excitement <laughs> about when to fudge, <laughs> right, right? yeah. So, so, in a So, in a when way... do we fudge? One spot where we fudge is... Near the end, yeah. when things are exciting and, and something that's cool is going to happen, and everybody is on board with the thing that you're trying to make happen, that's an ideal time to fudge. Earlier on, why fudge? There's you're early on, and if Diego spent all his points, well, he's just going to, you know, maybe you'll let him get shot in the leg at the end, but yeah, he's just just as, as, ride a, this as, one as out, a treat. Right? <laughs> yeah, and I guess this is then starting again in the question of what does it mean to say do it when it's interesting because it is something that is a statement that rolls easily off the tongue of uh experienced uh, gms and other gms sometimes i say say, well okay but what's what's the marking point of interesting can how do you tell whether the moment is interesting enough to uh, allow you to uh, fudge a cost or go for a different cost than the one you
1: originally planned. I I feel like it it gets into our our discussion. If you're on your way to the end, you have to be on your way to something, right? The, the fudge builds or points or accelerates. The fudge does not cancel or resolve or negate. Right? So if you are, everyone is like, we cannot wait to get to the uh, firework factory and kill all the kobolds that are hiding in the firework factory then fudging stuff on the way to the firework factory feels natural. It's the the players have, have put the effort in. They've got the, the momentum. You know, they don't need to be slowed down by that guard. Yeah, let him, you know, let the face man... You know, he comes out, he says, don't worry, I've got this. He confidently goes to the guard. He says, don't worry, we're fireworks inspectors. And it's like, ordinarily, maybe you'd charge a point for that, but it's so good and it feels so right. And we just want to get to the fight with the real fight, not the stupid fight. It's like, yeah, OK, you you, you that, that might take a push normally, but let's go. Let's keep going. That was terrific. And um for Kobolds, obviously, I refer to the Corrigans, those handed Breton spirits of folklore, not f20 kobolds good lord And, and so the um i think the the question of you have to do it in service to the the direction of the play you can't do it instead of a player decision or a player sacrifice because at the moment in the tactical moment at the climax deciding to spend that last point is literally you know that's the you know, that's the mechanical representation of the tension and you want that and uh, doing it, you know, in those kinds of circumstances is a little bit iffy. I guess my other version is when it really feeds character concept and doesn't nerf the story. So when the face steps out and he says, we're fireworks inspectors, that's character concept. He's he in, in the player's heart. She believes that she's handsome, confident, uh, Starbuck getting stuff done on the way to the big space fight. We don't need to worry about this, you know. If, if the player is playing a, a archetype or a character with with a vibe. Feeding that vibe is more fun than squelching that vibe. You know, you want Captain Kirk to be able to smile at the alien lady. You want Sherlock Holmes to be able to not spot the cigarette, but imperiously shrug off the disdain of his social betters, right? You you want that to happen on the way to the actual thing that's going to happen in the story, which is, you know, the confrontation with the Klingons or Moriarty or whoever the bad guy is, right?
0: Right. And I think the one thing where people will always forgive you for openly hand-waving is near the end of a one-shot or a convention run. Or uh, just, you know, even in your regular play, if, you know, you're half an hour away from the end of the story, uh, people are starting to pack up and leave already, and nobody wants you to come up with another three hours of filler Mm -hmm. to make this go for another whole session next week. I think then uh, people become very forgiving, and uh, you could even say, well, we'll come up with some, you know, way to uh, clip uh, Diego's wings next week. You know, he'll, the gun will go off this week and it'll uh, hit him two weeks later. he
1: will begin with a shock card from the or horrific events of the finale or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's the other thing is that most of the time, unless there's really strong interplayer uh, not inter-character, but interplayer competition, most of the time I think people will embrace fudging if it means everybody gets their share of something. Right. But of course, if in the very last scene, Diego wants to spend a push to mess everybody else up, does do, do you hand wave that? No, you do no, not No. because uh, they don't want it. Uh, you don't want it. Uh, it might be fun, but not fun for everybody.
1: And and not fun. Two minutes and, before you uh, have to leave. That's
0: absolutely, you know, no matter how much plot that generates, you don't do it because yeah. that's, you know, that, that is screwing with the, Uh, internal dynamic of your player group
1: yeah and again if if diego has decided this is the time to become captain pvp you know maybe you know let him spend it and just say we'll resolve this after the fireworks factory you know next week will everyone will have a week to start and uh, to think about what you've just revealed and then that can be the the meat of the game next week i don't think that you necessarily tread on diego's player agency but as always you've got to keep the rhythm of the individual session in mind as well as you know the equanimity of of everyone at the table just to make sure that it doesn't evolve into a lot of dice throwing
0: right well, i'm pretty sure at this point diego is getting bummed by yeah, how much his, we're
1: his ears are burning i yeah, tell you that
0: going after him so i think i think for his sake we better end this segment and see what Uh, other segment lies on the other side of this uh, beautiful handcrafted commercial.
1: Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt to
0: recruit a vampire. Yeah, yeah, we've been through all
1: this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries.
0: For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy.
1: Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If
0: only someone could gather up all that material that you and gareth wrote after the fact
1: someone has you made gar do it didn't you we've assembled gar has assembled the cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page pdf available free with a special offer
0: from the Pellgrain store
1: just buy a print copy of the director's handbook standalone or
0: the dracula dossier core bundle the director's handbook and dracula unredacted in print
1: or the dracula dossier starter kit bundle The Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, The Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in Print. Get
0: 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions, and the cuttings from the dossier PDF, entirely free, with the code VAMP2021.
1: And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pell store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do
0: nothing, Kickstarter backers.
1: All others use code vamp Twenty Twenty One for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings.
0: The war map and the sand table, the flapping of the tent, the uh, sound of bugles tell us that we're once more in that most uh, militant of huts, the command hut. And this time around, uh, Ken, uh, you've mentioned earlier on the show that uh, one of the Cultural changes that we're going to start to see as a result of the Ukraine conflict is we're going to start seeing lots of movies and television and uh, perhaps even tabletop role playing uh, scenarios where the Russians are the out and out bad guys again, because uh, the needs of uh, thriller and pulp fiction are for bad guys. And sadly, the world doesn't need more bad guys, but it's got a bunch of them. And some of them are in the Russian mercenary company called the Wagner Group. They've been uh, in the news a lot lately, but uh, as with many things uh, Russian, under the surface brutality is another layer of weirdness and corruption, Uh, (laughs) and that uh, also brings uh, brings them into the ambit of this podcast. So, Ken, you've uh, been searching some dossiers, you've cracked some codes, and you're here to tell us. About the Wagner Group and how they make splendid villains and uh, real-life scumbags.
1: Right, and indeed, a finer passel of villains and scumbags you could not ask for. They put the villainy in Scum and Villainy. They, in theory, were founded in 2014. Uh, Their supposed founder and first commander is a fellow named Dmitry Valerievich Utkin, who is a former Spetsnaz lieutenant colonel in the GRU, which is Russian military intelligence. He was a veteran of Chechnya. He is uh, alleged to be a neo-pagan of the Rodnovari variety, which is the Slavic style of neo-pagan. He is also alleged on maybe stronger evidence to be a neo-Nazi. And uh, he certainly named the Wagner group, or is the reason the Wagner group was named, because his call sign was Wagner. And it was not because of his musical sensibilities, necessarily, that he had that call sign. Yes, uh, there,
0: there, there are some good reasons to like Richard Wagner. Many, many good reasons. Not one of them.
1: He likes him for all the other yeah, reasons. So there's context clues here. Yeah. Now, the question about Utkin is, was he ever more than a fake front? Because, for example, Bellingcat, which is to say, bored MI6 guys, have found his resume, which was circulating circa 2014 when in theory, he's charismatically beginning the Wagner group and he's all like, um, anyone want to hire me? I, I am, I'm okay. And they're like, Oh, I don't think that the guy who's running the Wagner group should be circulating his resume at the same time. So their theory is that it was actually set up by a former Oman special teams, Uh, Oman Spetsnaz, which is sort of like National Guard if National Guard had a SWAT team, and the SWAT team was Spetsnaz. Right,
0: because all military... Units in Russia are at some level cops.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, all their troops are cops. That's one of the problems with their troops. But anyway, there was a uh, Spetsnaz colonel named uh, Andrei Troshev, who, uh, Bellingcat at least. And again, since these guys are spies, everything in, in this is question marks and alleged, but we're going to keep doing it because some of these guys are billionaires and we don't want to be sued. Anyway, uh, Andrei Troshev is thought to be the actual uh, commander on the ground that wagner is sort of put up because he has the right profile he's a chechnya veteran he's a His um, call you know sign he's a call sign, a is cool etc right. so uh, that's the thesis is that you know as always you know the, the when gru is doing something they've got the thing they want you to look at and the real thing and the theory is that uh, utkin is the sort of the figurehead and I, when i say is i mean was because he hasn't been seen in public since 2019 he was uh, given a medal by Putin in 2016, and everyone said, who's this guy? Why is he getting medals? Is he in charge of the Wagner group? And the Kremlin's like, no, no. All right. Yes. And then shortly thereafter, there was a notable cooling by the Ministry of Defense towards the Wagner group. And then, as I say, circa 2019 Utkin's profile was lowered and it has been speculated that he was lowered six feet under some frozen tundra. And that was the end of Utkin at any rate, their current, operational commander seems to be a guy or political commander right around the same time in the 2016s uh, right after that they switched to being more of a more conventional mercenary group and that they would provide political muscle for coup d'etats in africa and we'll get to that but that guy who made his bones there is a fellow named Konstantin pikulov his code name is mazay which apparently is a reference to to a big band rocker who is very popular in Russia. So I guess the uh, American version would be someone who went by the codename Springsteen. But anyway, Mazay Pikalov, who is the head of a different PMC uh, private military corporation called convoy, which may be the shell that Wagner uh, inhabits because there's never been a, a corporate, you know, you know, here's Wagner group, LLC, and here are its owners and here's its vice president. Uh, that's never happened. Wagner group, it doesn't exist on paper and has been denied repeatedly by every echelon of the Kremlin. And this guy, Pikulov, he's a segment by himself. And you think, how can he be the segment? Utkin was a neo-pagan and a neo-Nazi. Well, Pikulov was a colonel in the GRU and headed a unit called Unit 99. 99- 795, which was located near St. Petersburg, and was, quote, an experimental unit of the Ministry of Defense tasked with determining the effects of radioactive rays on living organisms. So, elliptons. Elliptons. He's literally a guy who was the Spetsnaz guy at their ellipton program. So, if if there are, you know, Soviet super soldiers, he was building them. Then he became a private eye, and I want to read his caseload, That must have been great. A failed political candidate in 2016 and then was brought into Wagner. So, right.
0: So it's basically, we need someone really loopy as our new figurehead because the previous guy had this awesome resume.
1: So a Lipton guy? Sure. A Lipton guy. A Lipton guy, private eye, and politician, which is because Wagner was at that time getting more and more politically involved. Um, The supposed owner and director of all of this is a fellow named Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is known as Putin's chef. And he's known that because he is a restaurant oligarch. And you might think, how do you become an oligarch running restaurants in Russia? And the answer is, you have the catering contract for the Russian military. And suddenly, you have billions and billions of dollars of untraceable money flowing into you. And
0: And if I recall the last time we mentioned him, he's got some elliptonic Fordian conspiracy elements to him, too, doesn't I'm, he?
1: I'm sure he does, but uh, this segment is already long enough without diving into Yevgeny Prigozhin. But he also has been indicted by the Justice Department for running troll farms, uh, including troll farms attempting to interfere in American elections. So you pays your money and you takes your choice because the Justice Department... Maybe slightly more reliable than MI6, but who can say? Anyhow, Prigozhin, of course, denies it, says, I would never run a Wagner Group. I'm very busy with my restaurants, so what can you do? The bottom line is, Wagner Group is a deniable arm of the GRU. They fly on GRU planes. They base near a GRU restricted area base. Their commander uh, staff is all GRU. Uh, famously, the only way you leave GRU is feet first. It's one of those, you know, you're always GRU regardless of whether you retired or not. So it's a GRU puppet. It has been compared in many ways to Blackwater, the American mercenary unit, which has now got some even dumber name, um, Academy or, or something like that, which is what the CIA does when it doesn't want to get the actual CIA purpose militaries involved this seems to be a similar thing
0: yeah they sort of have a cool name and then when the cool name gets too hot it's like have a name that sounds like a peer-to-peer business software company which
1: is why you went from wagner to convoy i guess yeah but anyway we're going to keep calling them wagner because it's fun it's about division size now it has grown substantially since it was founded with about 1500 members well, I say it's division size. Now uh, it was division size before the February invasion of Ukraine. It's about 90% Russian. Well, I hear divisions are going down in number. Yeah, they are. They're getting um, smaller. Yeah, they're they're getting more agile. Anyway, uh, there is a ongoing rumor that while Wagner was deployed in Syria, they recruited a bunch of Syrian soldiers. So maybe it's 85% Russian, but it's mostly Russian. Uh, the average age of a Wagner mercenary is 40 the recruit salary begins at two thousand dollars a month in rubles. Obviously, so
0: is is forty high in the mercenary world?
1: I think 40 is high in the military world. I feel like it's maybe not as high in the mili- in the mercenary world because obviously, to be a good mercenary, you have to have military experience, and that means that you spent you know your your twenties probably out in some desert being shot at. So I assume that. In, even in America, if you join a mercenary unit, you're joining it at, at the youngest in your 30s. Right.
0: And And the cliche is that, you know, the mercenaries are the... People who didn't get enough war and mm-hmm. are now trying to make a, a buck on it. So that and, makes-
1: uh, the Ukrainian SBU, uh, the Ukrainian intelligence has, you know, done a deep dive. Uh, they have their own little pet project, their own Belling Cat that is basically just tracks Wagner guys. I mean, they have a lot of pet projects. This one does that. And, uh, because ro- Wagner guys like, Guys in everything can't stay off social media. So even though you're supposed to stay off social media, it's like rule one of the Wagner Group. At least half of Wagner Group has a social media profile. Uh, they got forty eight hundred and fourteen different dossiers, and that was before, that was back in twenty nineteen, I think. Yeah,
0: and now it's almost like they're planning to hunt a bunch of people down later. It's,
1: it's yeah, they're they're making little tick marks. I think in a whole different office. But uh, the Wagner Group, like I say, between two and four thousand dollars a month with good military. Military experience, other sources, however, put it much lower at 650 bucks a month, which is like lawn cutting money to 2,000 a month with good military experience. So, and again, also Wagner stops paying you once you're in the field and can't do anything about it. So keep that in mind, disaffected uh, youths of this former Soviet Union. Anyway, there's a Serb unit, there's, as I mentioned, the Syrian unit, there is a neo-Nazi pro-imperial unit, the pro-Romanov, called the Russish, who are also neo-pagans and have runes all over everything, so, again, Wagner, play into brand. Like I say, they first appeared in 2014, they were showing up as some of the little green men in Crimea, they first appear as a actual unit in Luhansk. They fought in the Donbas through 2015. Then they were employed by the GRU to go around and kill unreliable militia commanders. So if the guys in the Luhansk were like, we are independent. Oh, no, we're not. That's who told them. Uh, then they were deployed en masse to Syria. They spent between 2015 and 2021 in Syria. Most of the Syrian Wagner presence has been drawn down and sent to Ukraine. They were mostly Sea cube die specialists initially, driving tanks and things. But as it became ever more apparent that the Syrian government troops were terrible, they got more and more employed as shock troops, especially for important targets like oil fields, because apparently the Syrian government passed a law that said, and this by passed a law, I mean Bashar Assad said, that if you take back an oil field from ISIS, you get to keep some of the money and Uh, Prigozhin is interested in money, as are we all, I guess. And so, suddenly, Wagner is getting chewed up a little more uh, as cannon fodder to attack oil fields, such as... The f- February 7th, 2018 Battle of Kasham which for some reason did not make big news in America. I would have thought it would have made huge news.
0: It's like everybody wanted to keep it
1: quiet. It, it is. <laughs> nobody wanted like. to look into the implications of what it would mean if it became a big, serious deal. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Battle of Kasham very, very briefly. Again, we've got like so many segments in this segment. Uh, 500 Syrian pro-government forces with Wagner and Iranian cadre attacked... A Kurdish-led uh, Syrian Democratic Forces position that, unfortunately for them, had 40 U.S. special operations soldiers there embedded with them, and uh, they called up, and it apparently went all the way to the Pentagon, and uh, Secretary of Defense Milley calls the Ministry of Defense and says, are there Russians this spot in Syria at Kasham, and the administrative friend says, There certainly are not because Wagner's deniable. So then they said, That's all we wanted to know. <laughs> they hang up and they obliterated the attack, just wiped them out. Live by deniability, die by deniability. Exactly. Yeah, that's the downside of the secretary will deny, will disavow. So, anyway, uh, the Wagner death estimates from that single battle range from 12 to 218. So, again, take your money. The 218, by the way, comes from russian social media not from the pentagon the ukrainians by the way in that little dossier i mentioned list 81 wagner deaths right at that date so i think that seems like a good minimum to say but you know again pick what you want but certainly that was a a black eye for wagner and again this may have been because they were using worse weapons because the ministry of defense like the guy who answered the phone when Millie called, we're maybe a little sour on Wagner. So, yeah. well, they, as they
0: say, a bunch of people left the GRU that day.
1: Yeah, they did. The feet first and in pieces. So, following that cooling and following the bringing on of Pikalov, if that's what happened, they begin to get deployed to more conventional bodyguard work. They train other militaries. They go out and commit uh, war crimes, ideally to frighten locals into not supporting X given rebel or terrorist front. So, they were deployed to Sudan, and they slaughtered people in Darfur, which is a little 90s of them, but sure, whatever. Uh, They killed protesters, they trained the army, and they stopped over a gold mine like you do which they're still running as far as anyone can tell they were in the Central African Republic fighting in the Civil War the French withdrew with great you know noise about oh we can't be imperialists we must leave and of course what happens is Wagner group goes in and, you know, does what the French were doing, which was being the iron fist of the Central African Republic government. They did bodyguard work in Madagascar for Maduro in Venezuela. They're still in Venezuela. They built bases and served as cadre for a Libyan rebel group. This operation may have been funded by the United Arab Emirates. So, again, everything is more tangled than you think. Uh, They fought ISIS in Mozambique and had their ass handed to them by ISIS in Mozambique, which... Seems, I don't know, to me, maybe third string ISIS. They were in Mali, where they recently were blown up for committing yet another series of horrible war crimes, blown up in, you know, the media, not actually blown up, sadly. Uh, They may have mounted a coup in Burkina Faso in uh, January of 2022. They were also busy trying to kill Zelensky and getting actual blown up then. And they've been fed into the ongoing invasion of Ukraine, where one estimate is that 3000 Wagner mercenaries have been killed. Although like all body count estimates in all wars, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but Wagner is no longer in their salad days. They are now in their cold salad days, I guess.
0: And so as you pointed out, there are so many uh, different connections and different people they could be uh, working for that. If you've got a modern scenario uh, where you need uh, mercenaries and, uh, the people who are hiring them are also bad. <laughs> it can be the Wagner group in your version, or a convoy group, or a thinly disguised version of that if you care to thinly disguise them.
1: Right. An even more horrible group. And obviously, they make perfect, you know, bully boys, agents, muscle for some vampire conspiracy. You just posit some vampire who's high up in the GRU and. Presto, change you have to change nothing else about the Wagner group, except now you maybe have an idea what uh, Pikalov was doing in Unit 99795. Right.
0: And just as on uh, the medical show House, the disease never turned out to be lupus, they could be the lupus of your scenario in which, is this the Wagner group, and then it turns out to be some other much weirder, more supernatural vampire or, or uh, outer dark entity-aligned group turns out to actually be uh doing the the Wagnerish things or under cover of Wagner
1: or and again, they are probably who was present at Buca during the latest war crimes outrages. If you have a very strong stomach, there's footage of Wagner taken by Wagner doing all manner of horrible things to prisoners, so whatever you thought was too far for the outer dark. That's that's like Tuesday to Wagner, so keep that in mind. Um, as always, the world will make orcs if you need them, as I guess you pointed out at the beginning. And Wagner makes fine orcs, I would say.
0: Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, leave the world of uh, all-too-real horror and let's uh, let's go find some fun horror. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... and six-guns role-playing game,
1: Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astvigeln on DriveThru. Shield this podcast from Krungus by joining such organically sapient Patreon backers as Ben Brigoff, Gray St. Quentin,
0: Jay Moore,
1: Jeff F., and Josh King. the clanking of chains, the whispering of ghosts, the cold scratches on the universe's outside rim, the tippity-tap on Twitter tell us that we're in the confines, the horrifying confines of the horror hut, where beloved Patreon backers Derek Upham and Stuart Thomas have both brought to our notice tulpas. They say, do you want tulpas? Because this is how you get tulpas. There is a fellow on the Twitter named Brain Mage. Great name. Good for you, Brain Mage. Love you.
0: Yeah, he didn't have to be Brain, even be Brain Mage 019. He's the original Brain Mage.
1: The OG. He's OG Brain Mage. And I don't know if anyone else has the Twitters or their own social medias, but there is a bunch of these... AI art generators, uh, Dal-E being the the big dog, Um, their beta is out and people flood your timeline with allegedly hilarious Dal-E things. And so you, you plug in Beyonce eating ice cream and you get a bunch of hilarious things that don't look that much like Beyonce eating ice cream. And
0: and what you're mostly seeing are something from an offshoot called Dal-E mini. And you can tell if it gives you like 12 very smudgy, crummy things that kind of look like something the actual dali which i've been playing with i've got in the beta is a whole other kettle of fish it looks great this looks smudgy and weird and they're the ones who created krungus (laughs) so brain mage typed in the word krungus and it generated a sort of kind of trollish troglodytish bald clawed gray looking kind of golemish a uh, horrible figure, half ghoul, half ogre. You half might ghoul, say. half ogre. Uh, the images look like each other, and if you type in other variations like Krungus in the grocery store, it still looks like Krungus. Krungus doing stand up. So this is quite remarkable that a made-up name would generate consistently this image. Now, only Dolly Mini does Krungus. I tested it in regular Dolly. Nope, no and Krungus. AI art machine, the main one I've been messing with. I can make it do a Krungus, but it it doesn't inherently Krungify. Others have found that they've asked AI storytelling, text-based things, will, if you ask it for a story about Krungus, they'll tell you a story about a horrifying troll about a terrible monster. So I guess the first questions you probably have at this point is, is Krungus real? Yes. Yes. Is Krungus going to come for you? Well, now that you've listened to this
1: segment, I'm sure that he will. It seems unlikely that you can avoid it, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, the theory seems to be that the this one particular AI program, somehow its search found the name of the Guar character slash member Odorus Erungus, which is, you know, swap out the U for a C and you've got Krungus. And apparently if you swap out other letters for the C... It will give you consistently other weird monsters. So this appears to be the, the you know, if you're looking for fun ruining, looking for a real life answer to what's going on. Krungus isn't real. If that's just what's happening, but we already established Krungus is real. Yeah. So what we can bring to the table since I think particularly Stuart sent this to us going, this might be too obvious, but, mm. and I put it in anyway, because Derek also asked for it and I could use an obvious yeah, topic every, every now and, now and again. again, we
1: like, we like a, we like a low fat floater over the plate. Yeah, I got some other stuff going on. I could use some
0: easy layups, uh, but at any rate, obviously our question can is what are Krungus's stats? Yeah. In the different games. And so, Obviously, he looks like he's crawled, first of all, straight out of an F20 game. I'm thinking he's sort of mid-range challenge level. I'm thinking he's sort of, you know, four to six hit dice probably. And to me, I look at Krungus and I see a sort of a stealthy, sneaky, nasty, persistent solo monster. And so I think he's the one who uh, sort of picks up your trail And kind of brings a bit of it follows into your F-20 game. Mm -hmm. And he's the one you sort of see him on the hurrah. You see him come and, you know, maybe scrabble away some of your treasure in the room and take it out of a secret door and
1: get away and lead you. So so if he's solo, I think he's maybe closer to the sixth than the four in that metric, right?
0: It depends on which iteration of F-20 you're talking about, whether solo monsters can't exist at lower levels. So Mm -hmm. that's a question for you and and your chosen edition of the game to to talk because
1: I look at at Krungus and I see like the Ravenloft version of a bugbear or if you're playing in the Sandy Peterson fantasy world,
0: but but I would definitely want to see one Krungus, not a a bunch of Krungus. I feel
1: like the, 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 the Krunguses have a Krungus. That's the leader. It's like Grendel is obviously the most badass of the Grendels, except his mom. But there's got to be other Grendels out there. So what is, what's a Grendel with a small G? This would be a, a team of them, a bunch of them, a band of them would be Krunguses with a small C. This is capital C Krungus. Yeah. Right.
0: And, and I'm not saying that there's only, you know, in F-20, the definition of monsters in F-20 is they're always exist in multiples. Right. In, in, in a horror game. There's one Krungus. Right. He's a yeah. particular guy. It's like the Babadook. Yeah, and
1: in fear, it's in fear itself or, uh, uh, or esoterics. yeah, there's only one Krungus, and that's all the Krunguses you need. Right. Yeah.
0: But in F20, it's a particular type of creature. Mm-hmm. They're rare. Maybe the person in the, the thief maybe has heard of them, and mm-hmm. then they pursue you. Yep. And I think we're going to need special powers. So, he's very stealthy. He's the one who attacks your camp in the middle of the night. So it finally makes sense for you to specify who's on watch. Mm-hmm. He attacks you at a time of his choosing, uh, which is always annoying. He's not restricted to uh, dungeons in the wilderness. He might even get you in a city or in a tavern. He gets you in your inn. He climbs in, and uh, maybe he steals magic items. That's the most annoying thing that a F twenty creature can possibly do. And I think when you fight him, he also needs to have sort of you know he gets a big extra bonus for successfully surprising you but then on top of that i think maybe he sort of has a kind of a blink doggy like teleportation power where he can blink from opponent to opponent each time he hits and therefore spread out his damage among the party
1: oh here's a here's a thing what if Krungus, and you could do this in you know Thirteenth Age or whatever. But what if Krungus has a bonus to hit the player character, either who's the weakest or has lost the most hit points?
0: That's good. That makes him uh, nasty. Yeah, uh, and so you want to hope that. And I, I think maybe Krungus has like a a random tape, You know, he, you randomly roll to see which PC he teleports next to mm-hmm. and so yeah. he doesn't always teleport reliably to the weakest one but when he does that's extra trouble he gets,
1: he gets a bonus to hit them with his and he and he has a horrible bite attack right i mean you know in the in the krunguses they've got the the hideous teeth sure they got the hands you don't like krungus hands but i i think he's one of those monsters that doesn't have to grab you to bite you i feel like he just bites you a lot that's just a thought.
0: Yeah, uh, there's. Di- there's uh, I have different thoughts about the the Krangus attack. Uh, he looks kind of throttly as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could throttle.
0: Yeah, or possibly even just sort of bludgeony. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a variety of different injury cards that he could uh, meet out in uh, a quick shock gumshoe game. Uh, I would be moved to the uh, sort of actually pick you up and throw you around. That's yeah. sort of gives you. An interesting
1: contrast. So you have a breaker Krungus and a biter Krungus, and it's like, oh, which Krungus have we got here? Exactly.
0: Or maybe, because this is a virtual monster who came out of liminal space, maybe the Krungus changes his... His attacks and his identity from... Ra- so not only is he choosing a random opponent, but he has a, a random choice of two or three different uh, attacks that he makes against you. Yeah. He's already an Outer Dark entity. Yeah. He's already <laughs> He's something... That- literally
1: been summoned from the Outer Dark by Brain Mage. Thanks so much, Brain Mage. Well done. Yes, exactly. So he can be...
0: Uh, his powers in sort of the everyday world, you, you know, it can be a classic murder spree scenario where people are dying and you don't know why, and then you realize that they all were followers of uh, Brain Mage's uh, Twitter account. And uh, the question then is how, lots of people are, how do you, do you use some sort of tech to find out who's the next physically proximate person who possibly could have seen the image of Krungus and hunt him down that way? Or do you do what, you know, the agents of the Ordo Veritatis are trained to do is they look at the Krungus and the Krungus senses them And they're the most appealing targets. So now uh, they're going to find a way. They know if they hunker down, that's the worst thing you can do with a Krungus. Never hunker down. No hunkering. Keep moving. Uh, And so the task of the player characters is going to be how to come up with a technique on the fly to force Krungus to follow them into uh, an
1: unwelcoming environment to him. And And if Krungus follows the weak and the wounded, well, there's your tactic. Right there. Yeah. He, just be he shoot, he shoot
0: Diego in the leg. Like, exactly. <laughs> he hey, did.
1: Diego, remember that push? Bam! Now you're Krungus, mate. Well, now that we've shot poor Diego in the leg, uh, I feel like we should leave him here to see if Krungus uh, teleports next to him and breaks or bites him. And you, however, gentle listener, don't need to be part of this horrific spectacle. You can have the lovely spectacle of a commercial.
0: Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team
1: of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality.
0: From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a
1: harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts.
0: A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material.
1: Rules and guidelines for spying crime and backroom deals new rituals new tomes and the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity available now in pdf or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for october release
0: the clacking of chronitons and the worrying of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to ken's time machine this of course is the conveyance that Times Incorporated's superiors use to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. But this time around, they don't want you to mutilate anything, Ken, because uh, at least uh, Robert Dean, beloved uh, patron backer Robert Dean, wants you to elaborately craft a special decorative uh, wobble in time, uh, because uh, his proposal is that he's, uh, having recently been reading The Fantasies of William Morris... Uh, congratulations on succeeding at reading yeah, William Morris. Well done. Uh, considering how D and D ish they are, I'm wondering what it would take to get Morris to invent RPGs in the 1890s. So I guess before we figure out how to use William Morris to prematurely create role playing games, we need to know a bit about him. And Ken, why don't you start telling us about good old
1: William Morris? Yeah. Uh, William Morris is one of those people that was super famous in his day, and as day's work has become less so since then, but he's well worth knowing. He was born in 1834, he's from an upper middle class background, he was born in Walthamstow in Essex, went to Oxford to take classics, uh, hated classics, loved medievalism, was a big Ruskin stand. Uh, John Ruskin, the guy who sort of founded Gothic as an aesthetic, among other great triumphs. But while he was at Oxford, he met all the pre-Raphaelites. And if you remember our segments on Dante Gabriel Rossetti, then that's the pre-Raphaelites. Uh, he's hanging out with Burne-Jones and Rossetti uh, at college. They put together little play groups and they have fun. Afterwards, he founds a decorative arts studio, which he named The Firm or nicknamed The Firm with the, uh, many of the pre-Raphaelites in 1861. Uh, he starts writing poetry. Uh, it turns out the pre-Raphaelites are terrible at business and Generally, a bunch of scatterbrains. So in 1875, he becomes the sole owner of the firm, buying out the rest of the pre-Raphaelites. Also, by then, Rossetti has begun banging his wife, which Morris never, like, says anything about in public because he's, you know, English. But he doesn't like it, I feel. Uh, Even for bohemians. That's yeah. A it's like, come far. on, man. I'm, pay- I'm literally paying your bills. The least you could do. The least you, could, I feel like people said the least you could do to Dante Gabriel Rossetti a lot, but anyway,
0: right. and and a theme, we've covered Rossetti before on the show. and yeah. the theme is not a great guy,
1: not not an ideal human. Um, anywho, once he becomes the sole owner of the firm, he decides to start making textiles. He works out techniques of of knitting, replicating medieval tapestries is where he begins. But he does silk, he does all kinds of other things. He designs the textiles, he designs the uh, way to uh, put them together. And it is, I think, his textiles, hangings, wallpapers that sort of gave him the most cred in his era, along with his poetry. But he also did a thing that will make me love William Morris forever, over and above uh, fonts. He founded the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings in 1877, much to the chagrin of his former... Uh, He began as an architect and left that because that was boring, but his former uh, mentor as an architect was redesigning Tewksbury Cathedral, and Morris blows him up and says, this is a horrible scam. You're tearing down legitimately uh, medieval things to build faux medieval stuff. When I got into medievalism, it's not about being faux, it's about being real. And uh, that turned into a big deal. And I think that may have been part of what radicalized him. He was always sort of a radical politically, but it's shortly after that uh, blow up with his old uh, architecture buddies that he becomes an overt out and out socialist and goes so far as to found the Socialist League in 1884. He's always founding stuff is our uh, William Morris, because again, once he's the sole order of the firm, he starts making huge bank selling decor and decorative arts and interior uh, design to rich people. And William Morris, to his credit, is aware of the contrasts in his professional and personal life and the fact that he does not, in fact, pay his workers a profit share. Um, And when people say, goodness me, William Morris, where have I read about how everyone should pay their workers a profit share like in medieval times? He says, shut up. (laughs) So he's he knows. Yes.
0: Well, one of those contradictions (laughs) is historically rare. The artist who is good at money, not common. The socialist Who doesn't treat his workers right.
1: Uh, A little more common. A little more common. common. Anyway, he then founds the Kelmscott Press to do beautiful hand-tooled books. He designs fonts for them. They are things of joy forever. Uh, Frankly, you know, William Morris could have had a puppy murder hobby, and I'd still say, but Kelmscott Press, that's nice stuff. So, you know, take my opinion of William Morris with a little bit of, of a grain of salt, because for a, a socialist hypocrite, he goes out of his way to get on my good side. Anyway, he turns down the poet laureateship in 1892 uh, when it's offered, uh, saying that he doesn't want to write a bunch of poems about the queen because he's a socialist. And everyone's like, oh, my goodness, William Morris. And by this time, he has moved from not just writing his own poetry. He was always translating poetry. He got into Icelandic poetry very early, translated the Eddas, translated the Volispa. But he begins writing novels around this time, beginning with The House of the Wolfings, which is a historical fantasy set in ancient Germany during the time of the Romans and the Huns. He writes that in 1888. There's magic in it. There's a dwarven suit of chain mail. There's curses. Lots of stuff. Hugely influenced Tolkien. He follows that up with The Story of the Glittering Plane. In 1890, that's an Imram, which is a mystical voyage from uh, Irish tradition. It's not his first mystical voyage. He's written a poem called The Earthly Paradise in 1868, which is basically a lost world romance that takes place in medieval times in that a bunch of medieval guys sail to an island and find a bunch of Greek pagans. And uh, that's good fun. So that's again, part and parcel of the era. Then he writes The Wood Beyond the World, which I think is the one that most people know. It is the first major secondary world fantasy. There may have been a couple of cases before that, but it was, you know, published by real publishers. It was, you know, it made a huge splash. This is 1894. In 1895, he sort of backslides a little bit with Child Christopher and Godolin, the Fair, which is a retold medieval lay. And then he comes with Well at the World's End, which is another secondary world fantasy, Water of the Wondrous Isles, and The Sundering Flood, which was published after his death in 1896, uh, published the next year, is the first fantasy novel with a map in the front. So, you know, whatever else William Morris does in life, he has protected buildings made wonderful fonts, and invented the fantasy novel. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, uh, you, you can put up with a little bit of uh, bad behavior for that kind of uh, record, right. I feel.
0: So when this request for Time Incorporated came in, I asked myself, why did I bounce off of William Morris? I know I bought one, and I got only a little while in, and I didn't go any further. So I dialed me up some William Morris. So this is the second paragraph of the Wood Beyond the World and so can I gonna read the first sentence of mm-hmm. the second paragraph? Now ye may well deem that such a youngling as this was looked upon by all as a lucky man without a lack, but there was this flaw in his lot, whereas he had fallen into the toils of love of a woman exceeding fair, and had taken her to wife, she not unwilling as it seemed. And can I I'm going to continue reading the second sentence and stop me whenever you want? right, but when they had been wedded some six months, he found by manifest tokens that his fairness was not so much to her but that she
1: must seek to the foulness of one worser than he in all ways all right all right there, all right worser is I, i'm I'm out, I'm right. out deem fine, manifest tokens, all right, I'm giving you the side eye worser, let's just say that William Morris is lucky that he restored those cathedrals, yes,
0: so the thing about. Morris, as indeed with most uh, sort of pre-Tolkien fantasy precursors, is that it is written in one might charitably say uh, a sort of a twee fairy tale voice. From our background, we might also say, "Oh, that's the the dumb voice you affect at the table <laughs> of the of the wizard," and you say, "For a, you know, he's the the clue giving wizard voice," but that's the voice of the whole novel. So we did need. Tolkien and Howard in their own very different ways to both find a way to bolt more contemporarily accessible language onto what Morris and, and others who influenced them were doing. Yeah. And, and that's why maybe uh, you haven't read Morris and why I was congratulating uh, beloved backer, Robert Dean for successfully doing it.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, again, he, he's painted all those yes album covers. Obviously Robert Dean has a great aesthetic, <laughs> But Morris is deliberately, he's not just being a goof. Morris, his whole life is, the height of uh, civilization was the medieval times. It was the 13th century. And everything we've done since then has been a drastic falling away. This from an atheist, by the way. So, he's a barrel of contradictions. But he's trying to write like Mallory. He's... You know, he says, this is how you write a a romance. This is how you write a proper prose romance, is you do it in the language of Mallory, and it's the same way that he says, how did medieval people make a tapestry? Let's do that. How do medieval people build a cathedral? Let's do that. How do medieval people write a fantasy novel? Let's do that. That last may be a bridge too far, as you suggest. But anyway, the question is, how does he get into role-playing games? And my thought is that For a guy who only wrote one and a half plays, he had some strong ideas about theater, and I suspected that his ideas about theater were idiosyncratic, as with the rest of Morris. So, he wrote a poem called Love is Enough, which was in the form of a mask, which is a series of scenes, each of which sells a message, either allegorical or political, and within that poem, there is a medieval morality play. And first of all, that shows very eager to experiment with form is our lad Morris, because he may talk a good game. No one ever did that in medieval times. Um, then he did write a play to make money for the Socialist League called Nupkins Awakened uh, in 1887, which was a hilarious play about an archbishop and a hanging judge who are brought low by good-hearted socialist rabble-rousers. And George Bernard Shaw saw Nupkins awakened and laughed his head off the whole time. He said he's never seen a better play or a better performance. He says, Morris absolutely got into character in our parlance. He says he the way he played the Archbishop was to extinguish all light and wisdom from his countenance, which <laughs> is classic Shaw. Um, speaking of people who... Uh, Shaw, however, restores no cathedrals, designs no fonts. He's still on my bad side because um he hates Shakespeare and therefore enemies forever. But he says about Morris that... A man's mouth may be shut and his mind closed much more effectually by his knowing all about a subject than by his knowing nothing about it. And this is because Shaw was mad that when he tried to talk to Morris about theater, Morris would blow him off. And this is because Shaw was a modernist. Uh, Shaw thinks uh, that it was because Morris was too smart. I leave the experts to decide the difference it's between very those two versions. sweet of Shaw
0: to take that uh, perspective. But,
1: but anyway, I, I was correct that Morris definitely had... Uh, idiosyncratic ideas about theater that he wanted a theater that could be performed artisanally that he wanted a, a theater that uh, expressed truths perhaps in old-timey medieval language and sure enough who's he uh, buddies with is as robin pointed out in the script Do you want to take this robin or yeah
0: so yeah. now i'm not sure i think this will involve you having to move a obscure but important to us work of H.G. Wells back into the timeline. Mm-hmm. So in our timeline, H.G. Uh, Wells invents wargaming. That's, that's our timeline, not our imaginary one, mm-hmm. by writing Little Wars in 1913. So we don't know how long he was playtesting Little Wars, or at least I don't know. Do you?
1: I, I think that, I mean, when you say he was in, he invented wargaming, he invented wargaming rules for the populace because wargaming, of course, is invented by a guy named Von Ressowitz in Prussia as a military tool in 1811. And toy soldiers become gigantic in the Napoleonic era. The Brontes play with toy soldiers when they're inventing fantasy world creation iteratively, which is a different thing. I, by the way, was not able to find out what William Morris thought about the Brontes, but again, this is right. in my hip pocket. Okay,
0: so we're we're digressing a bit here.
1: Well, this so, is this all is part of my... Is, uh, do you need to fudge H.G. Right. Wells? I don't believe that I need to fudge H.G. Wells' fondness for toy soldiers. Right, because... I feel like Wells was fond of toy soldiers from a boy. He played with his toy soldiers. And because he was HG Wells, he said, we need a system to play with the toy soldiers. Let's do it in 1913. And I feel like you get HG Wells, you get toy soldiers, you get the experimental theater, and you get architecturally woke, font-loving raconteur with a ready supply of uh, alcohol who says, Did you guys ever hear about the Brontes iterative world creation in a world of romantic fantasy, William Morris? Well,
0: I'm going to say, Ken, that you're not going to actually even need to mention the Brontes. You don't even need this bit where, excuse me for saying so, of course, you're the time agent where he goes backwards from theater into LARP and then creates role playing. All you got to do is get H.G. Wells, who went over to his house in our historical world in Hammersmith and visited him. They were friends. He would go over to uh, Morris's place and have him run a war game, have him run a proto version of Little Wars for him before his death in 1896, any time before there. Mm-hmm. And I think that, in fact, what will happen is what happened, you know, later on in Lake Geneva in, in our timeline, where Morris will see this game and go, well, this is delightful, but what it needs is a man in a funny hat talking in weird elevated language. And bingo, there's role-playing, just as we had it in our world, the same act of creation just in the 1890s.
1: Yeah, and I, f- I feel like, uh, I'll tell you what, Robin, we'll run that. If that's enough, great. I'll just hang out looking at fonts. If it needs a friendly uh, raconteur uh, with a ready supply of alcohol and a copy of the Brontes journals, also cool. You can be the rogue. I can be the rogue. I can be the rogue. That'll be good fun. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, the the direct Gary and Dave division between HG uh, Wells and uh, William Morris, I guess we can leave as an audience project. But yeah, I think that this is another uh, possible linchpin. And I feel like William Morris is the kind of guy who, when you say, but surely medieval people made up stories, the rest... <laughs> as it literally uh, could be history right
0: now having done that we've had this form of question before of how do you create role-playing games earlier and we always have to end with the thing we always say which is we're not doing that (laughs) because ken and i both have a vested interest in role-playing not being a form that is literally as old as film right starts in the 1890s and by the time we come along is a mature form that we have no way to get into. Mm-hmm. We needed it to be in the state that it was in the early 90s that required our services. Yeah. So it is weird that Time Incorporated, I don't know who makes the assignments or who makes sure that certain assignments get lost or just put in the put it on the podcast, don't do it file. But sadly, once again, inventing role playing earlier, it's it's one of those fixed points in time, like they have in Doctor Who. You, j- you just can't uh, mess with it.
1: Right. It's it's literally a grandfather paradox, because if I make role-playing happen earlier, I don't get a podcast, and then I don't get recruited by Time Incorporated. You don't get a time machine. Exactly. So
0: it's it's a, actually literally a fixed point in time. Right. You don't even need the plot contrivance. Uh, well, having gotten rid of all plot contrivances in this episode, I think next week we can not only uh, shoot Diego on the other leg, but we can have a whole bunch of free plot contrivances because we've, uh, we'll have a double quota. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Asphagone, Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Protect this lovingly crafted podcast from the industrial blight of underfunding by joining
1: such sterling backers as Keelan Ohay, Sean Stevenson, Alexander Shendi, JP Morale and jesse low Wear the show or are drinking from a mug with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com
0: slash user slash ken robin
1: unleash your inner alien big cat with our latest design screaming on the moor on twitter he's at kenneth Hite. and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once
0: again uh, we will talk about stuff